Today we have Dr. Daniel Romero. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So what is your background? So I'm an audiologist. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, I have a clinical doctorate in audiology that allows me to uh, see patients. And I also have a PhD um, in communication sciences and disorders with a special emphasis in vestibular science that kind of um, has allowed me to pursue more uh, research in investigating the uh, basically dizziness and balance disorders across the lifespan. And so I do a little bit of both at, at, at Vanderbilt. So what is audiology exactly? Sure. Well, audiology is, when you think of like some of the other professions like psychology or some of the other um, professions in the healthcare field, audiology is probably relatively new. It, was, it started in like the 1950s after um, soldiers came back from World War II and having a bunch of hearing loss. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it's actually, we're healthcare professionals that specialize in the diagnosis, uh, treatment, and management of hearing and balance disorders. How are hearing and balance related? So hearing and balance are related in the sense that our ears basically have two different um, roles. So in our ears, we have the hearing part and we also have the balance part. Okay. It's all made up of the same, pretty much the same structure, um, except that it's basically divided in two. One part specifically fo- focuses on hearing, the other part focuses on balance. And we can get into more or less how, how those, you know, work in everyday life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how do they interact together? Let's just say you're walking down the street going for a walk. Yeah. Um, so they basically serve different functions. So for the hearing part of our um, ear, it basically responds to sound waves, okay? So it responds to pressure changes in the air um, that we, you know, collects different sound waves that I make, you know, when I, when any type of sound that's basically made in this earth, speech, um, environmental sounds, creates some type of pressure disturbance in the air that gets carried and funneled basically to your ear. Um, that gets trans, transmitted as an electrical signal to the brain, which the brain interprets as sound. Now, the balance system is a little different. Um, doesn't necessarily respond to sound waves or pressure changes in the air. Your balance system are basically a collection of different sensors that respond to different changes in acceleration. So if I'm moving my head from side to side, up and down, going forward and backward in a car or up and down in an elevator, those changes in acceleration um, gets picked up by the sensors in the balance part of the ear. So you have sensors that are sensitive to sound waves or sound uh, pressure changes in the air. And then you also have sensors that are sensitive to changes in acceleration. So all of these different sensors Mm -hmm. make up the ear as we know it. So, okay, I want to go back for a second. Yeah. I'm dumb. I want to make sure I'm understanding. So sound waves, like when we hear sounds, the, that is due to pr- pressure changes or yeah. like what exactly is a sound? Sure. Yeah. So a sound is basically a vibration in the air. Okay. Yeah. So we have, you know, 
the air is made up of a bunch of molecules, right? Mm -hmm. And anytime we create some type of vibration, um, it moves those molecules in some way. And that vibration that creates a um, basically a movement in those molecules that gets carried through the air. The air is actually almost is the um, the messenger, basically. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So if when I'm talking to you right now, my vocal folds are vibrating, changing and creating pressure changes in those air molecules that gets carried out through my mouth, and it gets transferred over there and gets collected by the ear. Um, the outer part of the ear, I almost like, think of it like a, uh, a big funnel. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. So our ears, the part that we can see, are basically devices that help capture those pressure changes in the, in the, in the airspace. Um, and then all of that just gets funneled down to those sensors that are designed to help detect those vibrational changes um, moving through the air. So let me ask you this. This might be a stupid question or a weird question. Does sound, the way people hear sound, does it vary from person to person? Can one sound um, sound like something different to, I, I guess maybe this is a philosophical question. I don't, <laughs> I don't know exactly what I'm asking, yeah. but it doesn't make sense what I'm asking. Like, can people interpret sounds in different ways based on what the actual hardware is of the ear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more or less the overall uh, perception of sound, um, you know, is are, are through the mechanisms that I've described, but that is more or less um, like the first stop. Okay? okay. So those, the ear is designed to capture all of the pressure changes in the ear, but ultimately our brain is where we actually hear sound. And so it's not, our brain isn't necessarily responding to these changes in the air molecules. It's actually responding to the electrical signals that are generated as a result of those vibrations. Um, okay. So we hear, our brain hears through electrical sound, electrical signals being sent to it from the ear. That makes sense. Yeah. And so our perception of, of uh, what the sound around us can certainly change. People have different, um, you know, I guess, um, preferences for certain sounds. Yeah. Or music yeah. taste. Absolutely. Or AS yes. ASMR. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking, <laughs> we went over some questions beforehand, yeah. but now I'm like starting to think of yeah. things just as we're talking. Yeah. I have never got the ASMR thing exactly. I don't, I guess I understand like the sounds are super pleasurable to people, mm -hmm. but I wonder how much of that is due to anatomy and how much of that is due to psychology. I'm sure you're dipping into the psychology, okay. the psychological realm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the whole uh, preference for music because yes, we you know, hear through, through sound, everything gets delivered. But, you know, as you know, music can often trigger a lot of good emotions. It can trigger a lot of memories. It can Sad emotions, yeah, bad emotions. Absolutely. absolutely. And so it can trigger different parts of the brain that are associated with memory, 
um, such as the hippocampus. That's been shown to activate as a result from like uh, dementia patients, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's um, there's a whole other layer of uh, you know there's the what we call physiology. Okay. Okay. So the anatomy and physiology. How does the ear actually work? And then the more higher up, uh, I guess the higher cognitive piece to that is our perception of it. So, and that's more of a psychology piece. Yeah. That's more of like, okay, the sounds that you're hearing, how is your brain processing that information and how, you know, what types of, uh, um, you know, perceptual psychological, uh, reaction or reactions are you having to that sound? Now, there are a couple of different um, things that we, you know, there are a couple of different um, disorders that can often affect the way we perceive sound. There's there's a disorder called misophonia, which is like almost like uh, an annoyance of certain sounds. Um, so again, like there's there's a lot of things that can go into the ultimate perception of how we hear sound. There aren't too many sounds that bother me, but the one sound that always makes me kind of cringe is the sound of a nail filer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I like I don't know what it is, but just the sound of someone filing their nails makes me shiver. Like, it sends shivers down my spine, and I, I have no idea why that is. It's been like that since I was a child. Yeah. Yeah, that's just like one of those things that, um, you know, goes into more of those psychological, the perceptual type uh, reactions to sounds. Um, There's there's also a lot of people out there that may have an they may be oversensitive, maybe have a high sensitivity um, to sounds Um, and that could, you know, even the smallest sound can can um, can make them feel uncomfortable in certain ways. So. Um, there's a lot of different factors at play, uh, both from a you know disorder standpoint, but also just from a psychological perceptual standpoint that can affect how we uh, interact with all the sounds in our environment. How are the the ear, nose, and throat connected? Sure. Yeah. So one. So I'll just give you an example as yeah. far as like studying audiology. Most of the undergraduate programs in audiology focus um, are kind of blanketed with uh, in a in a field or a topic known as communication sciences and disorders so um, you know like speech language pathologists yep. we're often very tightly uh, connected to that profession and so at the un- undergraduate level you're often if anybody wants to become either a speech pathologist or audiologist they're going to be taking both audiology classes and speech pathology or speech therapy classes. Mm. And the reason why is, well, if we're if just if we go down to the basics of communication, in order to learn any language or um, you have to be able to hear those of course sounds yeah. that are embedded in those languages. And so it's very, very highly connected speech and language development um, often heavily depends on um, the ability for someone to hear. And so anytime that, you know, there are speech and language delays and 
uh, a child, um, they are on a, the first thing that they want to do is rule out a hearing loss because they need to ensure that the child can hear and that isn't the reason why they haven't been picking up the sounds. Um, and so that way they can move on to other, you know, other, you know, more in-depth assessments. But, um, and so, you know, speech is often, uh, is basically going to be produced by, you know, our vocal folds in the throat. Um, all of those different sounds are going to be, uh, sort of modified and changed depending on, you know, the curvature of your throat and all of this. And that'll ultimately, um, that'll ultimately affect how that sound is sort of produced in that air that is picked up in that, uh, picked up by the ear. Um, and so oftentimes with, um, you know, the ear, the throat and the nose involves a lot of, it's all highly connected. Um, there's parts of your ear that are connected to the back of your throat that helps drain, um, or that's, that helps e basically equalize the pressure in your ears. Um, it's just all, all highly connected. Um, okay. si sinus infections of the sinus mm -hmm. um, can often really uh, directly impact uh, different parts of the ear. And so I, I think more from an anatomy and, and um, anatomy standpoint, it's all very, very connected. Interesting. Yeah. Um, like I know uh, with COVID, the whole thing was that you lose your taste and smell. Mm -hmm. So what exactly, like, do you know how those are connected? Is that something that you're familiar with at all? Not too familiar okay. with, not too familiar with the smell. Um, I know that we have seen, there have been a few reports of possibly, um, you know, COVID affecting hearing or balance, uh, more or less hearing. There's been some documented cases that have shown, but Really, I would say the the research is emerging at this point as to is there a has there been a direct connection between yeah. um, COVID and the hearing imbalance structures? We do know that any you know viruses can attack um, you know either the structures or the nerves of the ear um, that can cause hearing loss. It can cause dizziness, balance issues, and so you know COVID with COVID being a virus, you know it seems that that could be um, somewhat. Uh, a possibility, but as far as a direct link or, um, you know, how, you know, what are the, 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 the actual effects as a result of getting COVID. Cause it's so new. It's so new. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, um, definitely an area that, um, you know, researchers are kind of investigating. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole COVID thing, it's it, like, it just seems like COVID is here to say, it seems like we have it managed now. Um, but it was crazy in the beginning. Cause like, I, I remember for the first month, I didn't really want to, I'm an Uber and Lyft driver. I didn't want to do that. Cause we didn't know once they were like, okay, if you're young, you're healthy, yada, 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 you're at lower risk. Then I was all for it. But at first, like it was crazy to live through a worldwide pandemic. What was that like as a doctor? Yeah. So I was actually still a student during that okay. time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, uh, was still, you know, in school, um, doing a, a PhD at the time. And, uh, you know, it was, 
it was a uh, it was yeah just like with every, every everyone it was you know definitely a struggle and uh you know it i think thankfully i was able to get you know still a lot of um stuff that i was able to do um you know a lot of the requirements for schooling i was able to kind of go through that but trial you know, by fire oh yeah for sure and um but yeah no as far as like the hospitals and stuff yeah that was um you know just absolutely it affected everything and everyone it was a big question mark yep, yep. so you're over at vanderbilt yes and you are in the department of hearing and speech yep so yeah. vanderbilt is a super famous place uh a medical school um what sets Vanderbilt apart? Because I'll hear about it randomly, like on NPR or something right. like that. Sometimes right. where they're like a new study of Vanderbilt, blah, blah, blah. and I, I never know what it means because I'm dumb. But yeah, no, no, no. Um, so yeah, I work uh, as an assistant professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, the medical center and the university are, you know, pretty much one and the same. They're they're technically two separate entities, but. Um, you know, I spend, you know, half the time at the hospital. I also do, I spend half the time, um, you know, doing more, uh, research, um, as well as some teaching there, but really there, as far as from an audiology standpoint, there are about uh, over a little over, I think 75 different programs, um, in audiology and Vanderbilt. Wow. That's extensive. Yeah, there are. And Vanderbilt has consistently ranked, you know, some among the top in, in, in the country, primarily because of the quality of education that students get and the exposure. So, you know, you're not only in those classes, but you're also in the hospital, in the clinic, seeing, um, seeing those patients. And Vanderbilt often is like a hub, especially here, you know, in the southern United States for some of those more complicated cases. And so the patients that you see are, you know, some of the more complicated ones and, and, uh, you know, it really, um, there's a, there's a real collaborative effort between, at least in, in our department, between audiologists, uh, speech pathologists, uh, otologists, neurotologists, um, uh, physical therapists. So a, a wide range of different specialties to be able to provide the patient with the best care. Um, and so, from a hospital standpoint, from a patient care standpoint, top notch, you know, top notch um, patient care. But from also a research standpoint, I know Vanderbilt is also um, a highly regarded um, research university. And so a lot of excellent uh, researchers in the field with, um, you know, a lot of grant funding and, you know, a lot of really, really good um research programs that are pushing all of these different fields that I've mentioned forward and kind of being on the forefront of that. Well, it was like you were saying towards the beginning of the podcast, this is a fairly new field because you said it came about in the 1950s, post-World War II, soldiers were coming back with, with hearing loss. I imagine from hearing like gunfire, mortar fire, yep. just going off on the battlefield. Yep. So it's, it's something that we haven't gone... I guess too deep on yet, you know, or there's, there's at least still stuff to be explored. Yeah. They often, um, it's often said that, you know, as far as senses, right. Um, there's, 
most of the studied, most of the research, most, most of what we know um, as, far as, as far as a research standpoint comes from our understanding of the eyes or the vision. That's kind of, there's a lot of, um, you know, that's been around for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, following that is kind of more hearing research, auditory research, and then behind that is vestibular research. Or Which more is le- what your specialty yeah, is. Yeah, so that's what I focus on is vestibular, re- uh, vestibular research, which is basically the uh, focus on hearing or uh, uh, dizziness and balance disorders. And so there's, especially from the vestibular research uh, standpoint, we know quite a bit, but there's still so much more um, that we still, you know, don't quite understand yet about the vestibular system and how it functions and um, how it, you know, relates to, uh, you know, s- someone's perception, different things like that. So there's there's a there's a kind of I like to think of it as the new frontier um, of kind of research in this field is is um, kind of is looking at the vestibular system. What do you think the future is of vestibular research? It's a good question. Um, so what I believe the future of vestibular research is, is basically to kind of look at how we, we know a lot about how it functions. It primarily functions through different reflexes. So believe it or not, your vestibular system in your ear helps control your eyes when your head is moving. Interesting. Yes. So the fact that we can read signs when we're running or keep things in focus when our head is moving, that's because of our ears. And it does that through a series of different reflexes um, that are picked up again by those sensors that sense acceleration. Um, and it just moves moves your eyes accordingly, depending on how um, fast you're turning your head, basically. And so we know we know a, just a wide a lot about um, these reflexes that govern those um, the vestibular system. What are those reflexes? So the main reflexes the main reflexes that we um, understand and study in in the vestibular system. One is called the vestibular ocular reflex, which basically means this ear-to-eye connection. Very strong connections from your ears to your eyes. Um, that's the one of the that's actually one of the most studied reflexes, I think, in any, in any field. Um, and the second one is called the vestibulospinal reflex, which is not necessarily ear to eye, but ear down to your neck, down to your lower legs, down to your feet. So is it related to the spine? It's related to more or less our balance. Interesting. Yeah. So um, we'll kind of do a, a global global view here. Okay. Um, we need three things to maintain our balance. One, we need our ears. We need our eyes. And we need all the muscles in our feet. And so the brain receives information from all three and combines it to determine where it is in space. And so if any one of those systems 
are off, that's where people can become unsteady. That's where people can fall. Um, or if, in the case of the vestibular system, that's where people can become dizzy. How do you define dizziness exactly? Because yeah. there's a bunch of different definitions of it. That's a great question. Um, so dizziness is often a, an umbrella term. It is basically anyone's perception can be different, right? So with dizziness that is originating from the ear specifically, we're looking for a very specific type of dizziness. So I'm sure you've heard the term vertigo. Yes. Okay. So vertigo often um, is defined as a true spinning sensation. Okay. So that is going to be defined as vertigo. That is what we're looking for and what we're trying to pay attention to when we're taking a case history from a patient is are they experiencing vertigo? Because if they are experiencing that true spinning sensation, then that more or less can um, increase the chances that their dizziness is coming from the ear. So we're trying to pick apart this spinning sensation to see if they're having it, and then we kind of group everything. Everything else is known as dizziness. Um, again, it can be it can people define it as disorientation unsteadiness um they define it as lightheadedness um all of these different things but we're trying to to really see if it, if there's any true spinning sensations associated yeah with so so basically what you do is pinpoint if it is ear related at all or vestibular related dizziness yes yeah so if that's kind of what we do is um with our ENT colleagues, our otologists, neurotologists at Vanderbilt, um, we kind of help determine whether their underlying symptoms are related to any damage to those structures in the inner ear. Um, because if there is, then uh, we can, you know, help get them to where they need to go, either to physical therapy, either to neurology, a couple of, a few different um, locations. If not, then at least we can check off the ear as a contributing factor to their symptoms. And then, so either way, when we see a patient, we're, we're, we're helping, um, kind of guide them to where they need to go or how, at least help them get on the right track. So is there any way to strengthen your vestibular system if you're already a healthy person to improve balance, like let's say an athlete, sure. they want to become, I don't know, a gymnast. They want to become more erudite. They want to do things better. Is there a way to strengthen your vestibular system if you already have good balance? So great question. And I'm going to dive into a couple okay, of things. Go here. for it. So, um, so one thing is our vestibular system is not like our eyes, right? When we shut our eyes, we can't see. When we open our eyes, we obviously can see all the world around us. So it's almost like an on and off switch. Sure, right? yeah, that makes sense. Our vestibular system never turns off. It's always running in the background. 
It's always like that that computer program, that background processing that's always happening. Just like breathing. Yep. It's an unconscious sense. Um, it's not typically included in our five senses, right? Um, but it is actually, I would argue, is our sixth sense. Um, it's always on. Nobody really knows, notices their vestib- their, their, if their vestibular system is working until something goes wrong. Yeah, of course, yeah. naturally. So um, let's say that the vestibular system becomes damaged and it's dark outside. You're walking, you don't really have a lot of light. You're walking on grass, not very sturdy. You're not on a firm surface. That's where your brain is going to rely on your vestibular system. So does it send, does your feet send messages basically to your brain or like? Yeah, so like all of the the sensors in our feet, uh, basically in our legs, it's going to basically tell your brain whether the surface you're standing on is a hard, firm surface, Um, if it's not reliable let's say you're kind of walking on sand you're not really it's kind of you're not really getting a strong consistent reliable um signal from your from the ground um so the brain in that in that situation will kind of utilize our other two senses or other senses that we use for balance to help kind of reorient where it is and try mm-hmm. to, your job the entire time is to try to maintain your balance. And so basically, if that, if that information is, if that input that's coming in is not reliable, then the brain has to kind of try to re, uh, re-weight where um, it's getting good information from. And in that process of it trying to, uh, to, to process the information, like let's say you're on a cruise and you are getting motion sickness. Is that because it's trying to process the information and it's having a hard time doing that? Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's motion sickness is very, uh, it's an interesting, is an interesting topic, but that's certainly the, one of the contributors, right? Because, you know, you're typically on a hard, firm surface, but the boat's moving. Yeah. So it's That's conflicting sending, information. Absolutely. It's all conflicting. You know, the horizon might be steady, but you're moving. You're getting all of these conflicting signals, which can cause the nausea. It can cause some of those more vis- visceral reactions. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. When, it, when the brain receives conflicting information, it can, you can become dizzy. You can become unsteady on your feet. Um, so... But back to your, your point where can we make the vestibular system better if it's not damaged? Um, not quite, but there, basically there, are, there is some research out there. Um, well, we know what... Let me try to back up here. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> um, so the brain can always try to reduce the signals that it's receiving from the ear. Um, it's, it's kind of like that top down processing. It's, it always can do that unless there's something going on. Um, now there are certain professions like fighter pilots or, um, 
dancers or ice skating dancers that can train their brain from suppressing their vestibular system to a high degree. Interesting. So they can focus on what they're doing. Did you see Better. the new Top Gun movie? I did, and I loved it. Yeah, it was so <laughs> badass. But, um, yeah, so, like, they were doing, like, the, the G-Force thing, yeah. and they were, like, almost passing out right. while they were in that. Is that something like that? Is that related to vestibular function? Yeah, so with the vestibular system, you should never really pass out. Um, so that is, you know, that's certainly one of the things that we kind of look for when we're testing is, you know, it's, it's more or less, um, damage to that system is never really going to cause you to pass out in any way. Um, that could always be related to other types of, um, you know, cardiovascular type issues or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Uh, Too much blood going to the brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, for in that instance, it's probably related to some other factors going on there. Yeah. It's, that's fascinating to me. Cause like, if it's something that you just do is running in the background, like you're saying, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like Ram on a computer in a way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, if you're a fighter pilot, you were directly in life or death situations so it's almost like you're having to hack these systems that are functioning in you and fully like how how can you tr- train that though I yeah. guess. So one thing that we can always do is the visual system can always take over, right? So let's say that the brain is is really going to trust the eyes more than it is going to trust the ears. Okay. And so seeing is believing. Yeah. And so let's say that, you know, you're moving, but, you know, you kind of want to fixate on a point. Uh huh. To try to reduce anything or just try to minimize whatever um, sensations you're experiencing. Um, the brain can try to do that. You should always have what we call that top down control. Um, the brain should, you know, always have control of, you know, cause that, like you said, the vestibular system is always that, that Ram running on a computer. So it's always sending information to the brain. But the amazing thing that the brain can do is it can kind of cap how it can cap though, that information coming in. Um, and that's what I refer to when I say that, you know, there's been research in, in, in ice skaters, you know, when they're doing all their, their spins, Mm -hmm. they still need to focus and focus on a single point. So that way they are not getting dizzy during that spin. Yes. And so they have trained their brain in to such a high degree, you know, if they're spinning at, you know, 300 degrees per second and they're focusing on a single point, they're able to kind of really put a cap on all of that vestibular stimulation that's coming in at that moment. Well, I feel like it's probably especially difficult to do that because you're kind of, or maybe it's not, if you, you have to get into that flow state first, mm-hmm. which I don't know if this is something that you know about at all, but like, do you know anything about the science behind the flow state? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. What? Yeah. Okay. So like, let's say you're going for a run 
or uh, what? You grew up in California, right? Right. Did you grow up surfing at all? I did not. Okay. Did you play any sports? Did you grow up playing I sports? Played baseball. Yeah. Okay. So imagine you're at bat and you're standing there and you you're just in the zone. You know what I mean? Where it's like you notice, okay, that was a ball. That was a strike. And then you see that fastball coming straight down the middle and you swing at the perfect time to knock it out of the park. Right. Like that is, that is the flow state. Um, uh, this is a very, uh, a dumbed down way of explaining it, but it's, it's also the same for music when you're playing in a band and you're on stage and everything it's like, okay, I I see you have that tattoo on your arm of, of the sound waves. Are you a big music fan? Um, this was for audiology. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm yeah, assuming you've yeah. gone to I, yeah, uh, but I love uh, music festivals. Music, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Kinds, yeah. So think of like a great show that you've seen. What was the last great show that you saw? Oh, um, I saw the Lumineers. Okay. Yeah. Was there a point in the show where everybody was kind of singing along and it felt like there was this otherworldly presence? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. That's the flow state too, but that's also like the band can enter that in with each other. But when you do it well and you have the audience there, it kind of becomes this living, breathing organism all on its own. And you can enter in a flow state when you're going on a run. Um, when you're sitting there, okay. So you said you do like writing and research and all of that as well. Right. There's a point that time disappears. Yep. Oh yeah. And you are completely just, you're in it. There's nothing else. No other worries in life exist outside of that. Best, best times to write. It's just flowing. Yeah. Flowing. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm curious about learning more about the science about that. I don't know how much there is about that though. Cause I feel like it's kind of like almost ooky spooky in a way or like spiritual in a way. Um, but there is something to be said to that. And I think there's an evolutionary purpose to that as well. Right. If you think about going out and having to hunt and you're chasing down, I don't know, a Buffalo and you're in the, the great plains of the Midwest and you're just charging after this Buffalo going as fast as you can, pulling out a bow and arrow, pulling back and letting go. That seems like something that would be in a flow state. Oh to yeah. Me. yeah. Where, where everything just disappears our perception of time because time I think is the one thing like as you get older that you perceive as faster and faster and faster. But I, I, I wonder about that though, because maybe it's just when you're a kid like when you're five, a month seems a lot longer because you haven't experienced that many months before. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just rambling right no, now. Yeah, I, no, yeah, I have nothing I enjoy of it. To say. I enjoy this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's there's so much uh, to be said for th- these kind of. I don't know if you would call it uh, senses. I think it's really a combination of senses. Oh yeah. Where it's almost like you enter into a superhuman version of yourself. I agree. But yeah, so that that was just uh, a side rant. Um, but back to dizziness. So people come to see you for dizziness. How do you test them exactly? What do you do? Yeah, so those 
couple of different reflexes that I've mentioned, primarily that uh, vestibular that ear that vestibular ocular reflex or that ear eye connection. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our tests are designed around that, and so basically, we'll uh, do a combination of different tests where we basically use and measure eye movements while you're moving. Um, and I often like to think of I often like to think of the eyes as the windows into the vestibular system. Okay. Because depending on how your eyes are moving, it can tell me a lot of different, a lot of good information about how that underlying reflex and how that inner ear is functioning. Um, and so basically we're able to, if we're able to kind of measure um, de- looking at the eyes, we're, we're able to measure how those sensors are detecting acceleration. And like with anything, as you start to age, your function decreases. Yes, as with anything. As with anything. Um, when it comes to hearing, what are ways to protect your hearing? There's a lot of musicians who listen to this podcast. Yeah. At what decibel level, what decibel levels are dangerous and which are safe? Yeah, I would say anything above probably like 90 dBA um, is probably where you start to enter into that um, dangerous level. Now, what's also interesting is you reach a certain point that with every incremental increase in decibel, your time of exposure before damage gets halved. Wow. Yeah. So it is um, It is very important to, you know, kind of think of... A lot of these smartphones now have you know, limits or they'll at least let you know when you've been listening at, um, a level that could be dangerous, you know, after a certain amount of time. And the thing with hearing loss, specifically noise induced hearing loss is that it's often so gradual that we don't necessarily notice it. Um, it is so gradual that we think that we may have been hearing that way the entire time. And we don't actually we're not necessarily aware of how much we're missing until we see the hearing loss and take it a step further. We put on hearing aids and it's like, Oh my God, that's how much I've been missing. Um, and the funny, the, the thing about hearing loss is I always like to think of it like, um, as we start to experience it, almost like you've seen the game show um, Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, of right? course. Yeah, yeah. It's, I like to think of it, hearing loss as Wheel of Fortune. And so okay. without the, the puzzle solve, solved. Okay. Right? Okay. And so you may start, because most of our, uh, the language or the, the sounds that we use in language come from a very specific frequency range. Okay, so, you know, our consonants may be are, are the higher pitches and our vowels, the 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 sounds that give 
speech, it's loudness. So like our a, e, u, b, d, g, like all of our vowels, mm. that is, um, those are more associated with lower pitches. And so the way hearing loss typically, not in all ways, not in, not in every case, but hearing loss primarily due to either noise exposure or aging, usually those higher pitches are going to be the ones to first go. Okay. And so if the higher pitches are going, you're more or less going to be left without the consonants in your message. And you're basically going to be left with certain sounds, sounds that your ears can still pick up, but the sounds that are outside of the levels that you can hear, those are the sounds that you're going to be missing. And so you're constantly trying to put together that message when you do have a hearing loss, a significant hearing loss where you're struggling. Um, And then your brain starts to use other things to try to fill in the gaps. Okay, if I can't pick up the direct message, okay, what are we talking about? What's the context of what are we talking about the grocery store? Are we talking about, you know, going to bed? Are we talking about, you know, there's all kinds of things that the brain will do to try to help fill in those gaps. And if you do that all day, every day, your brain starts to, you start to become fatigued. And there's a lot of re- literature um, out there that shows that people are just more fatigued, more the listening effort goes up and people are just drained at the end of the day. Well, it taxes you because you're, you're, your different senses are, I imagine they're, they're trying to be used more. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know a bunch of musicians, uh, old dudes who told me when I was young, they said, protect your hearing now. I was lucky. So at the age of 17, I had a teacher, Matt Fogg, who was like, you need to wear earplugs every time you go to play, anytime you go out to a show, anytime you go out to a concert. Yep. And I've always gotten like the construction worker grade ones, like the heavy foam ones that they sell just at like Walgreens or Home Depot or whatever. And I got my hearing tested recently and I, I have no hearing loss at all. My, my hearing is average for my age. And a lot of musicians I know who are starting to get to that late twenties, early thirties, there's little things I've noticed when I'm talking to them where they're, they're like asking me either to repeat myself or they're like, I can't hear that. Or they start to have tinnitus all the time. Oh yeah. So how does, like, what is tinnitus exactly? And how is that related to damage to the vestibular system? Is that connected at all? Not necessarily. So, yeah, it's tinnitus is going to be more associated with the hearing part of the ear. Okay. Um, it is ultimately the sound that typically is not in the environment, right? Nobody else can hear it except you. Um, most oftentimes, tinnitus is going to be associated with hearing loss. So... It is um, most of patients with our patients with hearing loss will also have tinnitus. Um, Of course, there are other things that can exacerbate it, like stress and and all kinds of different things. Um, But more or less, it's going to be there. And I like there's a lot of different theories as to where it actually comes from. Um, 
again, we're, we're, we're hearing through our brain. So the brain is producing this pitch. Um, so that, it's the brain that's making the sound of oh, yeah. tinnitus that oh, ring yeah. in the ear. Um, Interesting. And it, there's definitely a lot of brain, um, brain functions and brain mechanisms involved. Um, you know, I used to I think of it as like, you know, when sometimes that uh, they call it the phantom arm syndrome, uh, when let's say that you, after an amputation um, of an arm, people still report maybe perhaps feeling it. Interesting. Um, and, you know, sometimes that, you know, I, I like to think of it in this way that, you know, there used to be um, certain pitches that you could, you, could, you could have or that you used to be able to be sensitive to um, that now the, the brain is producing in response. And so there's, there's a lot of different factors that could be involved, um, at whether it's damage to the actual structures themselves um, all the way up to the brain level. But there's still a lot of... Uh, a debate about where it specifically is coming from. What should people do? Like, when should they protect their hearing? Like, when does it call for it? Yeah. Um, I guess in everyday life, really, if you're working around loud noise, um, that is the time to protect your hearing. Scientifically speaking, though, what is, like, a loud noise? So... Anything that is going to be damaging to those little structures in the ear, um, that could, it could be an impulse sound. It could be, you know, a firearm. It could be um, anything that is going off near the ear that can cause... A lawnmower. A lawnmower... Absolutely. A drum set. Especially, yeah, absolutely. A drum set, especially if you're around that for a a prolonged period of time. Yes. Um, If you go, like let's say if you go to a concert and you go without hearing protection, you know, and you're, you're there for a few hours, you know, the next day your, your, your ears are usually ringing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, most of the time, we call it a temporary threshold shift. It is a direct result of some of that acoustic trauma that you experienced the night before. Usually that resolves in 16 to 18 hours. But, you know, do, after repeated exposure, it, it starts to do its wear and tear. And then it, my understanding of this, because I know just a tiny bit about it, the brain starts to hear that frequency of damage and that's when you start blocking it out it's repeated exposure to uh like a decibel level is that right um so with regard to the the tinnitus uh yeah so like let's say i don't know okay so my my dad was in the navy okay and he he worked on planes that was he was like an avionics tech on planes and he um he has some hearing loss from that like repeated exposure at a certain decibel level leads to hearing loss i guess i I don't really know 
what I'm asking because I don't understand how it happens. Yeah, no, repeated exposure to loud sounds. It could be at, um, you know, higher, of course, higher decibel levels, prolonged time, um, will eventually start to just do its wear and tear on the ears. And more often than not, those pitches are going to be those higher pitches. Um, those pitches right at around three to 4,000 hertz, especially from noise-induced hearing loss. Mm. Um, that is typically where we see um, our evidence of noise-induced hearing loss is at the highest pitches. And that has to do with a combination of the sounds that you may be exposed to, but it also has to do with the, uh, the way that the ear is just set up. Um, you know, oftentimes the, uh, anytime that the ear is picking up its vibrations, it, the first thing that those vibrations run into are the high pitches are the, the areas dedicated to high pitches. So think of it like a, uh, when you, let's say you walk into a home and, um, first thing you walk over is, you know, a fresh thing, a carpet, right? Well, after 20 years of walking through that front door, that carpet is not going to be as, you know, robust, right? Yes. Think of that area as soon as you enter into that house as your high pitch area in the ear. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My, my buddy, he actually owns uh, Nashville Carpet Cleaning. Okay. My friend Danny. So I'm, I'm just going to give him that yeah. plug right there. Um, but yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. I, I think all of this stuff is super interesting being a musician, um, like everyday task, uh, like, so doing like yard work when you're right. mowing the lawn, right. um, if you're playing in bands, absolutely wear earplugs. Is there a certain kind of earplug or hearing protection that you recommend? There's, um, quite a bit out there for sure. Um, there's a lot, there's, there's some that are disposable. There's like the ones that you've that's, gotten at Home Depot. Yeah, that's what I there's use. There's some that last four to six months. Um, there are also some that are custom made for your ear, your ear. Um, there's a lot of different great companies out there that make hearing protection for, uh, musicians, for hunters, for anybody that, um, is looking to get hearing protection. I know one is, uh, Edemotic research is a, uh, is a online manufacturer of hearing protection. Um, West tone is another big one in the, in the, you know, hearing protection game. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different options out there that are, um, absolutely designed to be better than some of those more foam plug ear. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's for, for a specific task, yeah, especially those, um, custom made ones. They often have filters that are designed to lower the decibel level, but preserve the quality of the sound across the frequency. Yeah. Range. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. Cause I know guitar players, they hate using earplugs because they can't hear themselves. Yep. And I'm a bass player, so it's different for me. Yep. Because as a bass player, I'm a lower pitch. I can feel myself. Yeah, yeah. So it could be just because of the sound vibration. Right, right. Um, 
So talk a little bit about your podcast. You have a podcast. What's it called? It's called A Dose of Dizzy. And you have a co-host on the podcast. Yes, uh, Dr. Liz Femler. She's also an audiologist who specializes in uh, vestibular science and uh, sees patients as well. And why did you start the podcast? So we started it because uh, we often, we both loved, we've been friends for quite a while, but we loved uh, vestibular research vestibular science. We love this area of audiology. And a lot of the time in, in audiology education, it may be harder for students to um, be exposed to a lot of the different areas that vestibular science has to offer. Um, and that could be due to a wide, different, a wide variety of factors, whether not associated with a, a large medical center um, you know, a, a, bu- a bunch of different uh, reasons could be behind that. And so the main reason why we wanted to start the podcast was not only kind of make vestibular research a little bit uh, easier to digest, um, but we also wanted to expose um, how cool vestibular science is to especially students that are training to become audiologists. Where can people find it at? People can find it anywhere that they listen to their podcasts. They could find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, It's through a a number of different uh, other platforms as well, but uh, those are probably the two main ones. Awesome. And how can people find you if they're looking for more about you? Yeah. Um, well, you can follow, we also have an Instagram page, uh, a dose of, uh, dizzy podcast. Um, that's primarily where we have, um, kind of put out new episodes, put out different things for students that we're doing. Um, me, um, I'm, I'm you could probably find me at the, you know, the Vanderbilt university medical center website that I get, um, within the department of audiology department of uh, hearing and speech science. And, um, you know, there's my emails there as well. And, um, you know, my contact information mostly. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for coming Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me.